Chapter 17 of The Suffragette, The History of the Women's Militant Suffrage Movement by E. Sylvia Pankhurst. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 17. November to the end of 1908. Mr. Burrell at City Temple. Mr. Lloyd George at Albert Hall. Release of Mrs. Pankhurst, Christabel Pankhurst, and Mrs. Lee. During the autumn, whilst Mr. Burrell had been visiting his constituency of North Bristol, Annie Kenny, the centre of whose flourishing West of England organising district was in that town, had prevailed upon him to receive a woman's deputation. In reply to this deputation, Mr. Burrell had said that the government did not intend to carry the woman's enfranchisement bill during that session, that many members of the cabinet were strongly opposed to the idea of giving the woman the vote on any terms, that in his opinion, the matter was not ripe for settlement, and also that he would not endanger his position in the cabinet by pressing the question forward. He added that he was in favor of the enfranchisement of rate-paying widows and spinsters on the municipal basis, but that he disapproved of qualified married women voting and that he would not support a measure to give adult suffrage to women. This last point was exceedingly interesting. It clearly demonstrated the cynical character of the suggestion made by Mr. Lloyd George and others that to give votes to women on the same terms as men was not sufficiently democratic to be supported by a liberal government, for here was a liberal cabinet minister declaring opposition to any wider measure. On November 12th, Mr. Burrell spoke at the City Temple, the church of Mr. R. J. Campbell, the well-known initiator of the so-called New Theology. It was well known that the suffragettes were present to heckle him, and the chairman tried to deter them by stating that Mr. Burrell had promised to give his influential support to any measure giving a liberal extension of the franchise to women. The suffragettes considered that this meant absolutely nothing at all, and continued to protest as earnestly as they could. The result was a terrible scene of violence in which large numbers of women were flung out of the church and dragged down the steps. The WSPU afterwards wrote to Mr. Burrell to ask what his statement had really meant. His answer, given through his secretary, was simply and solely that he had nothing to add to the reply which he gave recently to a deputation introduced by Miss Kenny. Meanwhile, though the militant tactics were being condemned as vigorously as ever, sympathy for the militants and a desire for the franchise were rapidly spreading amongst women of all shades of opinion. The Women's Conservative and Unionist Franchise Society was formed about this time, and the Margate and the Wallasey Women's Liberal Associations passed resolutions dissolving themselves until women were enfranchised, whilst the secretaries and committee members of other associations resigned their posts on the same ground. At this point, Mr. Lloyd George wrote to the executive of the Women's Liberal Federation offering to speak for them on women's suffrage in the Albert Hall. They agreed to his suggestion, and it was announced that he would make a government pronouncement. On this ground, the organizers of the meeting approached the committee of the WSPU, asking that the Chancellor of the Exchequer should not be heckled, but we replied that unless we had an assurance that Mr. Lloyd George's pronouncement was to contain a government promise to act, we could not comply with this request. As requests that we would alter our decision continued to pour in, Mrs. Tooke, our honorary secretary, wrote to Mr. Lloyd George on November 30th, stating that we would gladly ask our women not to interrupt him if he could assure us that the government were really prepared to do something for the suffrage cause, and that if he wished, we would pledge ourselves not to divulge his reply until after his speech had been delivered. Mr. George's only answer was a curt note stating that anything that he had to say in regard to the government's attitude would be said in the course of his speech in the Albert Hall. 
there was no hint in the letter of any great government pronouncement but indeed every one knew the leaders of the liberal women themselves knew and in fact had admitted to us that mr lloyd george had nothing of importance to say his speech was merely intended to pacify those women who were beginning to falter in their loyalty to the liberal party and to take the wind as far as possible out of the suffragette sails mr lloyd george was as much responsible as any of his colleagues for the present warfare his own personal record in regard to the woman's movement was not a good one therefore there was absolutely no reason for modifying in his favour the rule that all cabinet ministers must be heckled indeed his coming forward at this juncture to curry favour by offering empty platitudes was felt to be in the nature of adding insult to injury when on saturday december fifth the day of the liberal women's meeting arrived the albert hall was girt by an army of mounted police there was a general feeling of uneasy expectancy and every one seemed suspicious of what his or her neighbour might be going to do bands of men stewards known by their yellow badges were massed in the corridors and stationed in groups at the end of every row of seats nevertheless in spite of the fact that these men had been obviously engaged for the forcible ejection of interrupters in order to protect the promoters of the meeting from subsequent charges of brutality officials orders of the day were prominently displayed in which the stewards were counselled to do no violence to any person and the members of the women's liberal federation were asked whatever happened to act as though they were soldiers silent and steady under fire lady mclaren who presided over the meeting rose to speak with obvious uneasiness which was increased when she suddenly realized that all the women in the front row of the arena who had suddenly removed their cloaks were clothed as second division prisoners in dresses of green serge blue and white check aprons and white caps all stamped with the broad arrow for some time however all was quiet and it was not until mr lloyd george had been speaking for some moments and was proceeding to give various reasons why women were entitled to the franchise that he was interrupted by a tall graceful woman in one of the boxes she declared that all present were agreed as to the justice of the cause and that a government pledge to take action was alone required the speaker was ellen oxton b s c of st andrews university and the daughter of professor oxton of aberdeen her words were no sooner uttered than a man in the next box leapt over the barrier and struck her a blow in the chest while several stewards sprang upon her from behind she protested that she was prepared to leave the hall at once but the men did not heed her and continued to pummel her in the most savage way at this the audience were astonished to see her draw a whip from under her cloak and strike at one of her assailants immediately afterwards she was knocked down and disappeared note thirty two now the whole hall was in uproar mr lloyd george strove to continue weakly protesting that he was in favour of women's suffrage but then why don't you do something and deeds not words deeds not words came a clear bell-like cry again he went on to urge that he really was in favour but was met by why don't you resign from a cabinet that is hostile to women our women are in prison you run with the hare and hunt with hounds only one woman spoke at one time and each one merely fired a short sharp pertinent interjection but there were many of them and more than that the raising of each woman's voice was the signal for a wild outburst of fury on the part of the stewards who sprang upon the interrupter silenced her by a blow under the chin or an impromptu gag and after flinging her either to the ground or across the seats dragged her out head foremost hitting her again and again 
some members of the audience struck with fists and umbrellas at the women who were being carried past. Others tried to protect them, but the latter were always set upon by the officials and speedily bundled out. Even outside in the numerous passages that surround the circular hall, the ejectors, some of whom were heard to say that the affair was more amusing to them than a night at the music hall, would not allow their captives to escape, and still continued to ill-treat them until they had finally flung them down the steps and out of the building. At last Mr. Lloyd George stopped. The scene was becoming too much even for him. He declared that he would rather sit down than be the cause of so much violence. "'Yes, do sit down and stop it.' A chorus of distressed voices rose, but after a moment he went on again with the stale old reasons why women should have the votes. "'We have known those for forty years. We want your message,' still the woman's voices called, and each interruption meant an ejection. "'We shall get peace presently by this process of elimination,' he said. "'Yes, fling them ruthlessly out.' His own words at Swansea were repeated, and— you will never eliminate the suffragettes from practical politics. For more than an hour the scene continued. Again and again Lady McLaren intervened and secured a few moments' peace for Mr. Lloyd George to make his statement, and again and again he himself promised to give the government message but failed to do so, floundering back instead into a maze of arguments for and against the vote. If Queen Elizabeth had been alive today, he ventured once, but she would have been in Holloway came the retort, and then the protesting voices broke out afresh. Then, at last, after a flight of oratory on the excellence and the importance to women of the measures already introduced by the Liberal government, the declaration came. It was nothing but Mr. Asquith's old worn-out promise to introduce a reform bill and not to oppose a woman's suffrage amendment to it on certain conditions. The woman reminded the Chancellor that the Prime Minister had relegated the introduction of the reform bill to the dim and speculative future, but he protested that it would be introduced before the Parliament came to an end. He was asked how women were to prove the demand for their enfranchisement, which was one of the conditions of the promise, and his reply was, as the men showed their desire. But the women answered, men burnt down buildings, they shed blood, and the government has ignored our demonstrations. He was questioned as to the second condition that the votes for women amendment must be drafted on democratic lines, but though asked again and again, what is democratic, he vouchsafed no reply and at last the cry, where is the message, broke out once more, and a great white banner with the inscription, be honest, was hung out from one of the boxes. Of course, the WSPU was, as usual, much blamed for what had taken place. The heckling of Mr. Lloyd George was declared to be both foolish and wrong. Nevertheless, many newspapers protested strongly against the behavior of the stewards of the meeting. The liberal Manchester Guardian said that the ejections were effected with a promptness that gave the chairman no opportunity for intervening, and in many instances, with a brutality that was almost nauseating. The special correspondent of the Standard spoke of the grossly brutal conduct of the stewards, declaring that some of the worst acts of unnecessary violence took place within ten yards of the chairman's table, and therefore right under the eyes of Lady McLaren and Mr. Lloyd George. The men responsible for the acts were stewards wearing the official yellow rosette. That I am prepared to swear to. At the same time, the Manchester Guardian, in its leading article, though it condemned our action, admitted that Mr. Lloyd George's repetition of Mr. Asquith's promise was entirely unsatisfactory from the votes for women point of view. 
many others took the same line, and the conservative Globe said, We see very genuine grounds for the impatience displayed by the suffragettes at the Albert Hall. Mr. Lloyd George must have known that the declaration he had to make would have infuriated any body of men. But the matter did not end with newspaper discussions. We had realized from the first time that we should be made to suffer in many ways. Again and again attempts had been made to break up meetings addressed both by suffragettes and suffragists, but the women were hardly ever afforded the protection of the police, and as their meetings were almost entirely officered by women stewards, they were obliged to rely on their own powers of persuasion and magnetic force of will to control their audiences. This the suffragettes have always been prepared to do, but it was not always done without difficulty. Already, at a meeting in Birmingham, Christabel had been assaulted with the bodies of dead mice and, on live mice being let loose at one of our meetings, a well-known Glasgow daily paper had suggested that rats or even ferrets might suitably be employed. After Mr. Lloyd George's Albert Hall meeting, such outbreaks of violence against us became for a time exceedingly frequent. At a meeting which I addressed just then for a woman's suffrage society in Ipswich, there was abundant evidence to prove that well-known liberals in the town had bought shilling tickets of admission for a number of men whom they paid a further shilling each to create a disturbance, and as soon as I rose to speak, I was assailed by shouts and yells, the singing of a song especially composed and printed with this object, which had been distributed broadcast throughout the town, the rattle of tin cans and the ringing of bells. During my speech, several free fights took place in the hall. Walking sticks and other missiles were sent flying through the air, and an offensive smell of sulfuretted hydrogen was let out. The women who had promoted the meeting, whilst anxious that I should stand my ground, were in despair at the damage which they saw was being done to the hall, but when they sent for the police to quell the disturbance, the chief constable of the town declared that he had no power to act. His statement sounded strangely to suffragettes who had seen the police always massed around the meetings of cabinet ministers, and had also frequently seen them brought in to eject women interrupters. A few days after the Albert Hall meeting, Helen Ogston herself spoke at Maidenhead, where a gang of men, some of them made up as guys and dressed in women's clothes, waved whips at her, and finally drove the speakers from the platform. The only thing that the police could suggest was that the women should fly. At this time, a by-election was in progress at Chelmsford, and in organizing our campaign there, we had at first to contend with great disorder. On the opening night of the election, the members of the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies were entirely swept from their platform in the market square, whilst a mob of hooligans surrounded the lorry from which we were speaking and dragged it down a hill into the darkness away from the street lamps. Though, aided by steadier sections of the audience, we still succeeded in maintaining a semblance of order, as soon as we descended from the cart, the rowdies crushed and jostled us so unmercifully, that had it not been for some men who fought for us and who were seriously bruised in the struggle, we should have been trampled underfoot. We were at last dragged for safety into the entrance hall of the municipal building where a banquet was being held. The head waiter who stood at the door was exceedingly anxious to get rid both of us and the noisy crowd that remained clamoring outside, and we were therefore taken by underground passage to the police court and kept waiting there for an hour. This sort of thing did not continue long in Chelmsford, for, as has invariably been the case, as soon as the suffragettes became known to the people, the hostility which was at first manifested towards them entirely disappeared. Mrs. Drummond was the heroine of this election, for the WSPU campaign was entirely organized by her. 
In an illustration she is shown distributing leaflets to the farmers in the Chelmsford marketplace at the close of her speech to them. The result of the poll was a fall of nearly 20% in the Liberal vote and a piling up of one hostile majority against them from 454 to 2,565, which was generally acknowledged in the constituency to be largely due to the suffragettes. The violence of the rowdies met with little rebuke from political leader-writers and under the heading, Sparrows for Suffragettes, the Westminster Gazette stated, Essex has just provided two amusing suffragette incidents and described in the same spirit the letting loose of a flight of sparrows inside a hall where the women were speaking and the breaking up of a suffragist meeting by boys who had rushed the speakers and cast carbide on the wet roads. Consider the action of a body of women who, in order to obtain a share in the Constitution, deliberately decide to attend the meetings addressed by the members of a government that has the power to grant them what they desire but withholds it. Consider also that these women are deprived by their sex of the principal constitutional means of pressing their claim, and that their action is taken at great personal risk. Then, contrast the action of these women with that of a crowd of men who, absolutely careless of injuring either persons or property, and merely because they imagine that their victims are unpopular or opposed to those whom they believe to be their own political friends, deliberately set out with the intention of breaking up the meetings of women who are withholding no man's rights from him and who have no power to give rights to anyone, but who are merely struggling to obtain the franchise which their assailants themselves possess. Surely no one with an unprejudiced mind could consider that there is a parallel between the case of those particular women and those particular men. Party politicians had before them frequent examples of the two cases, and they decided that there was no parallel. They decided that the action of the men was excusable, but that the action of the women must be condemned in the most emphatic terms and must be sternly repressed at any cost. A measure called the Public Meeting Bill providing that any person who acted in a disorderly manner in order to prevent the transaction of the business for which a meeting had been called together should be rendered liable to a fine not exceeding five pounds or to imprisonment for a period not exceeding one month was therefore laid before Parliament by Lord Robert Cecil. As the slightest interjection or the most pertinent question by a suffragette had now become the signal for a scene of disturbance, it was clearly apparent that they would not be able to raise their voices at the meetings of cabinet ministers without rendering themselves liable to the suggested penalties. Though the bill was introduced but a few days before the end of the session, the government at once provided for it the facilities which had been denied to that equally short measure to enfranchise the women of the country, and it was quickly rushed through the two houses and became law before the end of the year. Party feeling on the one hand, and public indifference on the other, veiled for the time being the serious and revolutionary nature of this measure, and allowed it to be placed on the statute book with scarcely a word of discussion or protest. Nevertheless, it struck at one of our most ancient and fundamental national customs. Describing the ancient governmental assemblies of the Saxon peoples, Tacitus explains that though, as a rule, only the more distinguished members of the community put forward new proposals, all had a right to be present, and the bystanders at once expressed their opinion in regard to all suggestions. He says, the eldest opens the proceedings, then each man speaks according as distinguished by age, family, renown in war, or eloquence. No one commands, only the personal dignity residing in him exercises its influence. No distinction of rank exists. The assembly determines, and its determination is law. Proposals, when deemed acceptable, are hailed with loud acclaim and clash of arms. 
a loud shout of dissent rejects what appears to be unacceptable. Our present system of government is, after all, the direct descendant of these ancient assemblies. Largely owing to the distinctions of class which have sprung up and have grown more and more complex, and at the same time more deeply marked because of the constant struggling of those who already possess advantages of property and of education, to add to these advantages a greater political power than their fellows by restricting the rights of those who are poorer and weaker than themselves, many changes have been wrought. It has come about that our modern Parliament is elected by only a section of the people, and that almost the whole of the business transacted by Parliament is carried on by a small cabinet of persons nominated by one man, himself pitchforked into power by a possibly transient wave of popularity. Moreover, our existing system of party government renders this small cabinet almost all-powerful during its term of office and the strong party prejudice, obtaining both amongst private members of Parliament and the press of the country, secures that the cabinet shall remain almost exempt from criticism except by the followers of the opposing party. This criticism loses an influence and value because for party purposes it is directed almost without exception against every act of the cabinet, whether the act be in itself worthy or unworthy. The section of the people who are entitled to vote and who elect the majority that makes the power of the cabinet possible may, it is true, dismiss them at the next general election if they disapprove of the way in which their stewardship has been fulfilled, but they cannot insist upon an election when they will, and they have no power to decide that their representatives have done well in one respect and badly in another. It is only possible either entirely to accept what the representatives have done or to reject them altogether. There exists also the right of every section of the people to carry resolutions embodying their opinion in regard to matters of government which may either be published broadcast or presented in the form of petitions for redress of grievances to those in power. But what usually happens to resolutions and petitions put forward by those who have no political power is aptly expressed in the words of Mr. Sergeant Hullock, the counsel who spoke for the coercionist government in one of the cases arising out of the massacre of Peterloo, which took place in 1819, prior to the passing of the First Reform Act. If deliberation had been their object, he said, could they not have settled their petition in a private room and then have sent it to the House of Commons, where it would have been laid on the table and never heard of again? Nevertheless, the old right of the bystanders, the right of the whole people to express their opinion in regard to suggestions put forward by powerful folk, and to receive them either with shouts of approval or equally loud cries of dissent, still exists, and it exists, if it has not been altogether destroyed by the public meeting bill, not merely for men, but for women. This right is constantly exercised when a member of the government and, to a lesser extent, a private member of Parliament appears before a public meeting of the people to make proposals for fresh legislation and to give an account of his stewardship in the past. When he comes forward thus, the people, women as well as men, have the right to express assent or dissent with what he has done or with what he has left undone, with what he proposes and what he has omitted to propose. They have the right to question him and to demand an answer to heckle him during his speech if they will, and if they will cry out and refuse to let him speak until he has dealt with the thing which they have at heart, and if they believe that he has not dealt justly with that thing, they have the right to decide that he shall not be heard. How else can he know the mind of the country? How else can those who are without the parliamentary franchise express their will? There is no other way, and this right is one of those upon which the people of these islands have always insisted. 
those who have said that if this right be exercised the right of free speech will be endangered do not realize what the right of free speech is the right of free speech is the right of everyone to speak publicly and without penalty or restraint of what seems important and this old right to question and to express assent and dissent is included in it it is the only refuge of those who have no political power the right of members of the government to speak freely can never be endangered for they have parliament to speak from the police and military at their beck and call to protect them and enforce their wishes, and the press of the country all waiting to note down their words and publish them broadcast throughout the land. The right of poor and voteless people to be heard has been endangered by this bill, and so long as it remains on the statute book it is a standing menace to our ancient popular liberties. Happily up to now, the bill has been practically a dead letter, but none can be sure that an instrument of coercion which exists will not be put into force. Had the movement for women's enfranchisement been a movement solely of poor women with others dependent upon them, as might have been the case, the new bill might have proved a serious menace to the movement, but as it happened there was fortunately no lack of women who were able and willing to risk imprisonment. Therefore this bill could make no difference to us. Nevertheless, though our members might not have left a crowd of starving children behind them, we well knew that their going to prison entailed many sacrifices, and we always waited impatiently for their release and welcomed them back amongst us with the greatest joy. During the summer and autumn, bands of women in white dresses had flocked to the jail gates, had unhorsed the carriages provided to carry the prisoners to breakfast, and with purple, white, and green ribbons had drawn them in triumph through the streets. With Scotch tartans and Scotch heather, the Scotch woman had been welcomed, Four Irish Colleens and an Irish Piper and a jaunting car met Mrs. Tanner, an Irish woman, and women in prison dress marched from the station with Mrs. Baines on her return to London. When Mrs. Pankhurst, Mrs. Lee, and Christabel were released earlier than had been expected on December 19th, women on white horses drew their carriage, and behind and before there marched long lines of WSPU members wearing white jerseys, purple skirts and gaiters, green caps, and votes for women regalia. In the evening, a meeting of welcome was held in Queen's Hall, and as Mrs. Pankhurst, Christabel, and Mrs. Lee appeared, all the organizers of the Union in their white dresses lined up and saluted them with tricolor flags, whilst the great audience of women sprang to their feet and cheered and waved and cheered again, as few but suffragette audiences can. Then Annie Kenny stepped forward, holding in her hand a purple, white, and green silk standard with an aluminum staff, bearing a gilt shield inscribed with the great dates in Christabel's career. When Christabel spoke, she recalled the many thousands of women's suffrage meetings that had been held in this country, and the work of the pioneers who had begun the agitation more than forty years before. These women had labored well and devotedly, yet they had not succeeded in gaining for women the parliamentary vote. She believed the reason for this to be that they had relied too much upon the justice of their cause and not enough upon their strong right arm, for an idea had only life and power in it when it was backed up by deeds. What had been wanted was action, and it was for this reason that the militant tactics had achieved so much already and would in the end succeed. The old methods of asking for the vote had proved futile, and not only were they futile, but they were humiliating and unworthy of women. I say to you, she said, that any woman here who is content to appeal for the vote instead of demanding and fighting for it is dishonoring herself. The women who came into the militant movement did not fear suffering and sacrifice. 
they felt not that they gave up anything for the movement, but that they gained everything by it. Why, she cried, the women of this union are the happiest people in the world. We have the glorious pride of being made an instrument of those great forces that are working towards progress and liberty. That note was struck again and again, and it was upon that note that the whole meeting rested. Loyalty, enthusiasm, courage, belief in a great cause, the joy of fighting for it, these things filled the air. No one could fail to be impressed by them. When Mrs. Pankhurst rose to speak, someone stepped forward and pressed into her hand a replica of a medal struck to commemorate the fall of the Paris Bastille in the French Revolution, because she had been born on the anniversary of that day. She was weakened and worn by her imprisonment, but her speech, brief and somewhat hesitating as it was, contained a pronouncement heralding important events, for it foreshadowed the hardest and bitterest struggle to secure the rights of political offenders to British women, political prisoners that had yet been fought. Two further events must be chronicled before closing the story of the year 1908. The first is the fight of the Scottish women graduates for the recognition of their claim to vote under the Scottish University franchise, which they carried right through to the House of Lords. Though they failed to establish their claim, they yet brought to light many valuable new facts in regard to the rights and privileges of their countrywomen in ancient times. One of their contentions was that the question as to whether they might vote should be decided according to the actual wording of the University Franchise Act, and not according to the known or supposed intentions of Parliament, for that is the rule which the British courts have agreed to be always the just and proper one to adopt. There was nothing in the words of the Act to prevent women graduates from voting on equal terms with men. And even if it were held that this had happened because, when the act was passed, the legislator had not foreseen the possibility of there ever being women graduates, the right course to pursue, because it was the accepted course when such questions in regard to acts of Parliament arose, was for the women to be allowed to vote until Parliament, if it chose to do so, should carry an amending statute. The graduates pointed out that this had been done in the case of the first woman who had graduated in medicine, in the Netherlands where, as in England, graduation carried with it the right to vote. This lady had claimed her right and not being allowed to exercise it had taken her case to the courts. For technical reasons the case had been postponed, and during the postponement the legislature had brought in a repealing enactment to prevent women graduates voting and had succeeded in carrying it. The reason for the refusal of the English authorities to take this course is clearly apparent, for it would have been difficult indeed for our Parliament to carry such a repealing measure in the face of the tremendous suffragette and suffragist agitation. The second of these two important happenings, and perhaps the most auspicious one of the whole year, was the granting of votes to women in Victoria where, after struggling for many years, these suffragists had at length succeeded in inducing their government to take the matter up and had secured their enfranchisement on November 8, 1908. Footnotes 32. Miss Oxton acted upon her own initiative in using the dog whip, and her intention was not known to the committee of the WSPU, who felt, however, that they could not condemn her for seeking to protect herself. She employed the whip as a protest, not against ejection, but against the unnecessary violence to which she herself and other women had been subjected. End of chapter 17